And we're live. With Paranormal Dash Spirits, the place we come to get our booze on. We talk about the booze, the things that go bump in the night. And I get to do that with all my booze. I am Mike Black, and to my left, my beautiful and delicious wife, Alyssa. Hello. And tonight we have a story that's going to come in two parts. You're going to have to listen to us for two weeks in a row. Uh, The first part is about all the killings that took place at and around the Fox Hollow Farm in Indiana. The, uh, The second part will be about the hauntings that took place at Fox Hollow Farm in Indiana 10 years after the fact. So a first and a second. So there's a first and a second tonight. And, um, but before we get into that story, let me tell you all the places you can find us. You can find us on YouTube at YouTube. We are three B paranormal spirits. And right now, and we record early right now, it's not quite the end of the year. And we are setting it like 9,700, 9,800 views for the year. And the year being that we started actually producing videos in February. So for 10 months, not actually 12, we have almost 10,000 views. So we're pushing hard trying to get over that hump right now and trying to get everybody to, to check us out. So go, go check us out on YouTube. Um, also, we have a Facebook group, which is Booze with Benefits, and you can go there, join up, and you get little tidbits about what's coming out and when. Uh, we also have an Instagram site that's at paranormal dash, I'm sorry, paranormal underscore dash spelled out underscore spirits, and it's the same for TikTok and for X. Um, so if you can't remember any of that. And you don't, you're not watching the the video on YouTube, and you're listening on a podcast. You can go to paranormal-spirits.com, and that's kind of a landing page. You can get to uh, our all of our YouTube stuff, Instagram stuff. You can get to the Facebook group. Uh, you can also get to Boozy's Boutique, where we sell all this wonderful swag, like cups and racerback tees and koozies and dad caps and just about anything you make swag out of we've done there and uh, also that is a place that you can hit up all of our uh, reviews for the liquors that we drink on the show and tonight we will talk about the spirits the B-O-O-Z-E but very shortly so tonight I am drinking uh, Mijenta Blanco which is a unaged tequila and Alyssa is drinking g4 which is an unaged tequila and these are both like the g4 is kind of a unicorn it's hard to find uh, it's a little easier to find the mihenta uh, both excellent tequilas you can go to the website though and check out our views about it there now let's talk about spooky stuff <laughs> I'm ready are you ready? This. Well, we did the history of the spooky stuff first. Right? Yeah, we're, do, we're doing uh, how it all got started. And that started, this story, our story that we're telling starts in 1994 uh, with Eric Baumeister, who is the son of Herbert Baumeister. Okay. And he's about 13 years old and he's playing out behind the house. Uh, this, um, They've got this, he's approximately 60 yards behind the house. And their family has this Tudor-style home 
it, basically it's a mansion and it sits on 18 acres. Um, a great part of it is wooded. Where is this? This is in Indiana, Indianapolis. It's just north of Indianapolis. Okay. And so beautiful wooded area. So Eric would go out here. Uh, this house was like, like I say, it's a mansion. Had an indoor swimming pool. Uh, it's secluded, very affluent and kind of exclusive mm-hmm. area to to live. So Eric would go out here and he would traipse around the woods and, you know, like young men do. And he's imagining that he's the a soldier or an explorer or something like that and making his way through the brush. Well, one day Eric stumbles upon some bones, which is no big deal if you've ever been in the woods. And, you know, I grew up in the woods, so I know that you run across bones all the time in the woods. And it's not anything to make a big deal about. Animals die, scavengers take over, predators, even the elements will eventually rend the flesh uh, from the bones and the sun will bleach it out, right? Mm-hmm. But this time it wasn't a fox or a skunk or possum, squirrel, anything like that. It was human. And it was a complete skeleton laid out on top of the ground. And Eric comes across this and he can't believe that he's finding this. And he's saying, okay, this can't be real. So he takes the skull back to his mother. And Hey, mommy. Hey, Mom, guess what I found? Look at what I found. <laughs> Look what I can do. Look what I can do. <laughs> so Eric takes his skull back to the mom, uh, Julia, and she is completely freaked out. She calls Eric's father. And so anyway, she calls him, and which is Herbert, and tells Herbert, hey, Eric found a skull, actually a skeleton, back behind the house. Herbert says, oh, that old thing. He said, that belonged to my father. Now, Herbert's father was in the medical profession, and Herbert explained that this was a leftover skeleton that had been used for education. And after his father passed, uh, Herbert was tasked with cleaning out the uh, garage. So he just, you know, moved everything to his garage. And finally, you know, he's got this skeleton laying in the garage, so he just throws it out behind the house, out in the woods. Is that what normal people do? Yeah. That's what you always do with them. Oh, okay. And so anyway... Uh, so he just dumps it out in the woods and he tells her, don't worry, I'll get rid of it. Well, I bet he did. (laughs) Herbert was lying to his wife, but this wasn't the first time Herbert was suspected, a suspected serial killer. And he was thought to have been responsible for the death of over 30 young men spanning a 16 year period of time. At the time this was found. At the time this was found, it was a 16 year period of time, 30 men that he had that he was suspected of killing. So anyway, going back a little bit uh, towards the history of Herbert Baumeister, he was born in Indianapolis, uh, Indiana, on April 7th, 1947, the oldest of four children, and born to an anesthesiologist, Dr. Herbert Eugene Baumeister and Elizabeth Baumeister. And according to all reports, his childhood was normal until he hit teens, and then he started exhibiting these antisocial behaviors. Um, so he so, was normal until he wasn't. Until he wasn't, yeah. So some of the people who hung around him or were around him in uh, school uh, recalled that he was... Uh, Weirdo. Yeah, his fascination with urophilia. And I will put a definition of urophilia right along the bottom here so that mm. you can look at it. 
uh, <laughs> it's basically uh, the fascination with urine. And Herbert, and this is in quotes, pondered what it would be like to taste human urine. Mm. Um, Herbert. Herbert also enjoyed playing with dead animals mm. and urinating on the teacher's desks. So, yeah, he was a completely normal teen because I used to piss on my teacher's desk all the I'm time. I'm sorry. I would like to think he was normal up until puberty. I doubt it. I really think that was, hey, somebody ain't paying attention. I'm a freak. Yeah. Like, so <laughs> you don't just all of a sudden decide to go piss on the teacher's desk. No. Like, that's you, not. You know, that's, you know, that's. That's uh, that's master level stuff there. You can't just start off like that. No. So You've been ramping up to that. <laughs> anyway, uh, Herbert, uh, this some of this behavior caught the attention of his father. Mm. Uh, who sneaks Which in. part? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Uh, and so it catches the attention of his father. He sneaks him off to for some mental psychological examinations mm. and um, you know being in the medical profession he probably you know had a hint that yeah, maybe this kid ain't <laughs> right so Herbert was subsequently diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia and mm. antisocial personality disorder well yeah I saw that coming from a mile away when you yeah. told me what he did for sure he did not receive any further psychiatric treatment cute I guess his dad thought he'd be okay he's uh, good he's good <laughs> He's just a little weird. He'll be all right. He's a little bit weird. He's going through a phase. No. So anyway, uh, Herbert never really fit in in high school, never became part of that in crowd. Well, I don't want to either if you're pissing on teacher's desk. You're not going to be my friend. Yeah. Well, he withdrew to himself and spent many hours alone. He didn't date. Uh, In the mid-60s, early 70s, Ballmeister actually attended college but he would only attend a semester or two at a time, and then he would drop out. He just couldn't couldn't deal with it, you know. As a lot of a lot of folks that that have mental health issues, when they get into college and they start getting those stressors from school, mm-hmm. that's you know that's when they have their breaks. And he just couldn't hang. So as an adult, uh, Baumeister drifted through a series of jobs. Uh, reported that he had a strong work ethic, but that he also exhibited increasingly bizarre bizarre behavior. Um, Ballmeister married Juliana or Julie Sater in November of 71, and they had three children. Julie stated that they had only been sexually intimate six times in a 25-year marriage, not even having sex on their wedding night, and that she had never seen her husband nude. And how many kids did they have? They ended up with three kids. Man, that is that is what you call direct shot. If you only had sex six times and you got th- Man, kids is fertile, three at a time, <laughs> she is fertile myrtle. Man, if you have sex six times and get three kids out of it, yeah, I don't think people realize like pregnancy isn't as easy most of the time for most folks as it may sound. But I like that. man, Herb had it. So six months after they married, Julie reached out to Herbert's father, stating that Herbert was hurting and needed help. His father had him committed to a psych hospital for a couple of months. So eventually, uh, Herbert ends up starting up a save a lot thrift store chain in Indianapolis in 1988. And the success of that, uh, it was only two stores there in Indianapolis, but they had the two stores. And the money that they were making up from that, because evidently was extremely successful, allowed him to purchase Fox Hollow Farm in 91. 
1991. Now remember that okay. date because that's important. Because now we're going to shift away from Fox Hollow and we're going to talk about the I-70 murders that took place in Indiana and Ohio between 1980 and 1991. And 94 is when we, we found the skull. Mommy, mommy, when, I found a skull. Yes, 94 is when he found the skull. Okay. So in Indiana and Ohio between June of 1980 and October of 1991, the I-70 Strangler... That was a nickname for an unidentified uh, American serial killer. Killed at least 11 young boys and adult men by strangulation. Then he would dump their bodies near Interstate 70. Now this killer went, uh, would meet his victims. All of these victims were met in a downtown area in Indianapolis, about a four-block radius, uh, where the gay bars were at that time. So all of the victims were later found either naked or or at least partially closed, and near Interstate 70, often dumped in river streams, ditches, and in the rural countryside along I-70. Okay. And although he was never, uh, although these were officially unsolved murders, Baumeister was named as the prime suspect in the I-70 Strangler cases in April 1999. Remember that date? Yes. Okay. By law enforcement. So the I-70 Stranger cases stopped at around the same time, 1991, that Herbert bought Fox Hollow Farm. And they think that's when he stopped dumping on I-70 and started dumping... Went to the farm. Went to the farm and started dumping him in the woods behind this luxurious Tudor mansion that they had bought. And that was his new dump site for all the subsequent murders. Okay. So, in the 1990s, the Indianapolis Police Department had a strange missing persons policy. So, everything that I've ever watched on TV, you don't, you can't become a missing person until you've been missing for how long? Like 48 hours, Usually right? 48 hours. 48 hours. In Indianapolis in the 1990s, it was 30 days. You what? Had, you had to be missing 30 days before they would place a missing persons um whatever which uh, is sad because you know now that we know about how we know true crime and it's how it's blown up as much as it has mm -hmm. it's so hard to find anybody after i mean i'm sure they even knew it then but especially after like that first week oh yeah if first few days they don't find you in the first couple of days you're they're probably not likely going will to not, right yes so anyway uh indianapolis police missing persons detective mary wilson had been working um on these cases, taking notes that the gay men in particular had been disappearing from bars around the city. Uh, this missing persons uh, were all about the same age, similar features. Many of these men uh, had the same background as well as some were transient, transients and drifters and had little contact with their families. So it wasn't uncommon for them to be missing for a while. And anyway, they, so they people could be dead and gone. People and weren't out there looking for Right. Him. They could be thrown out on the side of the highway and they were just, you know, treated as trash and, and nobody really paid attention, right. unfortunately. So in July of 94, now 34-year-old Roger Goodlett okay. visited a gay bar on 16th Street in Indianapolis and he was never seen again. Not wanting to wait for the legal process to catch up and mm -hmm. th wait 30 days to report him as missing, mm -hmm. Roger's mother hired a private detective. Uh, the private investigator was Virgil Vandegraaff, 
and explained her son's story. She mentioned that he had a very trusting nature. Um, he had a tendency to drink too much and thought that that might be some potential reasons why he could have fallen prey to uh, as a victim to a kidnapping. So Vandergraaff noticed too many similarities between this case and others of the missing men to ignore it. And the latest experience was one that convinced Vandergraaff that these events were not just circumstantial and that they, he started connecting the dots and figuring out, Hey, we probably got a serial killer on our hands. So he investigated by questioning the bartenders and the customers of these, uh, the gay bar downtown, gay bars downtown. Uh, most were hesitant to talk, hesitant to talk. They didn't want to talk to him. Um, they did learn that Roger left the bar on 16th street that night with another man, uh, but only received vague details about the suspect's appearance. They described his vehicle as possibly being a light blue car with an Ohio license plate. Now the following month, uh, Vandegraaff met a man named Mark Goodyear. Mark Goodyear knew Roger. Goodlet. Goodlet. Okay. Mark Goodyear knew Roger Goodlett. Who's the missing person. Who is the missing person. Okay. And claimed to have information about his disappearance. And the information was... Uh, I know who took him. Yeah. He said not only had he seen and spoken with a potential killer, but may have been the only one of the victims to escape. He was a victim. He was, well, almost a victim. The informant made multiple visits to Vandegraaff's office, and the informant being uh, Mark Goodyear, uh, made several visits to Vandegraaff's office, and he gave him more and more details each time that he went. So Mark told Vandegraaff that he had met um, this suspect, the serial killer, at the 501 Club, which was a local gay bar one night, and described the man as tall, lanky, and silent. And he said this man, when he walked in, he was standing by Roger Goodlett's missing persons poster in the bar. And he was just standing there kind of just scrutinizing it. And as Mark Goodyear put it, he was almost obsessing over it. And he claimed that his demeanor and actions led him to believe the man must know something about his friend. Goodlett. Okay. And Roger's disappearance... Uh, may have had something to do with this. So he struck up a conversation hoping to find out more from this guy. Okay. So he introduces himself and the the man tells um, uh, Mark Goodyear that he introduces himself as Brian Smart. Uh, he claims to be a landscape artist who was living in a vacant home and invited Mark Goodyear back to the house for a swim and a drink. So they left the club. Mm. Now, as they leave the club, they get into Brian Gray, uh, Brian's great, Brian Smart. He is gray Buick, which at night in the dark could be considered light blue. And the vehicle had an Ohio license plate. And they headed out on I-31. So, uh, good you remember they were entering into this very affluent, uh, kind of exclusive area. And, you know, he's kind of lost. He's been drinking. Mm Mm-hmm. He doesn't know exactly where he's at. But after a while, they pull up this long, winding driveway, and out before him appears this sprawling Tudor-style mansion. Sounds familiar. Yeah. And 
property was dark, but could you manage to catch the sign as they drove in? But he only remembered that the sign said something or another farm. He did the, he only saw the last word of it, and it was farm. So he knew that much. Um, the two men go into the house uh, through a side entrance, and Brian Smart leads him down to the basement where they had this large uh, recreation room, and it is large, uh, with a wet bar and a pool. Now, when I say pool, I mean this thing is gigantic. I've, I've seen some videos of it. It's a large pool, and inside around the pool set up are these mannequins that are dressed and positioned as if they are hanging out at a pool party. Mannequins like in a clothing store mannequins. Mm-hmm. Okay. So they're, <laughs> so they're propped up. a different up. kind of kink. Yeah, so they're propped up. They're sharing drinks, some of them, uh, lounging by the water. And uh, so Brian Smart notices, notices that Mark Goodyear is becoming uncomfortable with this. So he says, well, you know, I get lonely down here. And About they, to say, sounds it, like somebody's really lonely. I, I get lonely and they give me company. Mm-mm. Well, this didn't make Mark feel any better no. or, or any more comfortable. So Brian offered him a drink. Uh, Mark Goodyear refused, didn't want to drink. Um, and was becoming more uneasy by the moment, you know, uh, with this situation. Mm-hmm. And he realized, hey, you know, I might be in over my head now. The one thing that probably saved Mark Goodyear is that he was like, this was a really big dude. He's like 6'5". So, I mean, he's a he's a strapping boy. You know, he's not a... Goodyear. Goodyear. Okay. He's a strapping dude. So, anyway, the two men, they go for a swim, and Brian Smart is extremely talkative, and he's, you know, uh, charged up, but he'd been doing coke, too. So that was probably oh, one well. of the reasons that he's all jacked up and talkative. So um, they hop into the pool and they're swimming around and Brian tells Mark, hey, I learned this new trick. It's called erotic asphyxiation. Oh, yes. Okay. Or in the common terminology, it's called scarfing. Did you know that? I didn't know it was called scarfing. It's called scarfing. Use a scarf so it doesn't leave marks on your neck. So I see. during the during a sex act, someone is, you know, scarfed down or choked down. Right. With. So Brian grabs this pool hose and starts choking down uh Mark Goodyear. And so he's saying he'd never tried it before, but Goodyear could tell, hey, this dude knew what he was doing. And he realized that Brian wasn't going to stop. So oh. he pretends to pass out and go unconscious. When he does, Brian eventually, he loosens his grip on the hose and he pauses for a minute and he whispers his name to Mark and he doesn't move, so he shakes him. And when he shakes him, Goodyear pops his eyes open, opens his eyes, and he said that Brian was just pissed and enraged at this point because I guess he thought maybe he had killed him, but now, oh, I which haven't. Which was straight, the goal. Which was the goal, and now I haven't. So anyway, after much more drinking and uh, drugs, uh, Brian lays down and takes a nap. While he takes a nap... Goodyear uh, bails. 
No, he takes the opportunity to go through the house and try to search for anything to figure oh, out who his, this his guy friend. is. Yes. Because his friend his got friend, killed yes. by this guy, he thinks. Right. I understand. Anyway, so he's unable to find any kind of identification. And uh, eventually he wakes Brian Smart up and says, hey, you know, I'm, I got to, I got to split. You got to take me back. So he takes him back to town. Well, Mark is wanting to get more information on this guy and figure out who he is. Cause now he knows this is the bastard that killed, you know, my right. friend. And so they agree to meet up the following week at the bar. Um, Brian Smart did not show. He didn't show up. Of course he didn't. Mm-mm. So, Goodyear didn't know the address and only had a vague description of the house, so it wasn't a lot to go on. Um, Vandegraaff suggested that Goodyear go back to the police with this information. So he went to the police, and the, he had already told them. He had already gone to the police with this, and they had written his story off as just absolute nonsense. You know, This time, uh, Detective Mary Wilson was ready to listen, and she told Goodyear if he she sees he sees Brian again, you know, to keep himself safe. But if he can get the license plate number to make sure that he takes that down so that they can track this guy and that the police would take it from there. So this is kind of an aside from this story, but at one point Mary Wilson had contacted a psychic and I didn't get, I couldn't find her last name, but her first name was Wanda and her visions were terrifying for her and she claimed to have seen a man handcuffed to a bed being strangled tongue swollen eyes bulging and she warned not to let uh, as she had conversed with mary wilson not to let goodyear go back out there with this guy because he would kill him which i'm probably I'm, sure. I, yeah, mm. I'm sure that he would i fully think that he was going to try to kill him that night he got lucky oh yeah i think so too so Vandergraaff, now the detective, the private investigator, he knew the general area of where the home was because they had headed north out from uh, Indianapolis out into this this area, and he knew he kind of knew it. But he had a guy that he worked with sometimes named Bill Hensley. Bill Hensley, he asked him to go out there. So Bill goes roaming up and down the roads all through this area. And finally, he has a hit. At the end of one of the driveways, there is a sign that reads Fox Hollow Farm. And he remembered that Mark Goodyear had described the sign outside the driveway reading something, something or farm. another farm. So the house uh, he found vaguely matched the description of the house that Mark had described. And it belonged to a family called the Baumeisters. Well, almost a year into the search for Brian Smart, they finally had a breakthrough. And Brian Smart stopped at the Varsity Lounge on August 29th, 1995. Goodyear, Mark Goodyear, just happened to be at the bar that night. As Brian Smart left the bar that night, Mark Goodyear followed him outside and was managed to write down the license plate of the vehicle as he pulled away. Uh, The license plate did not belong to a man named Brian Smart, as they found out. but It belonged to to Herbie. It belonged to Herbert Baumeister. And guess where Herbert lived? In an estate called Fox Hollow Farm, which had a swimming pool in the basement, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So anyway, Vandergraaff relayed this information to the police. The police approached Herbert at one of the stores 
the Save-A-Lot stores that he had there in Indianapolis and explained to him straight up, hey, you are a prime suspect in the investigation of all these missing gay men in the area. Man, way to put it out there. Dude, they just laid it right at his doorstep. Hey, dude, we think think it's you. We're watching you. I guess they didn't think he was going to bail. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe they did to scare him, to get him to react. Or to do something. Yeah. 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 And if somebody's that cocky, what they asked for was to search his property. Now, if somebody's that cocky, they might say, yeah, go ahead. You know, whatever. Because maybe he knows that they're not on the property, right? So they asked to search his property. He immediately refused and told them that any further communication would have to go through his lawyer. Of course. Now, the... Indianapolis detective Mary Wilson, missing persons detective, decided to take a different approach. And she uh, contacts his wife, Julie, and she was also stubborn initially and refused. When Mary informed Julie that her husband was under investigation for being a serial killer, Julie's attitude changed, but she was still refused to allow them to search the property. And I'm, it makes me wonder, because I've read some other stuff about the things that happened to Julie, like this guy was a, an overbearing asshole uh, a lot of times. And within the family, um, in the dynamics there, there was one time he went a year without even speaking to Julie and lived in a separate part of the, yeah, lived in a separate part of the house in some other room. Didn't even speak to his wife for a year. That's so weird to me. It is, but you know, is she married to the man or married to the money? I mean, I know that's a tacky way to put it, but, yeah, you know, and she's always talking about what a great dad he was in interviews that she's had, you know, post-crime. You know, talks about what a great guy he was and, you know, how good he was to his kids. But he was also an overbearing asshole to her. So she might have been afraid to... I'm sure she was more afraid of him than anything. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. So anyway, she was afraid to spill the beans. Right. Well, six months later... Whatever beans she knows. <laughs> she may not know all the beans. Right, she may not. Six months later, in June of 1996, their marriage had failed. It could have had something to do with Herb killing all the gay guys that he could pick up, you know. That might have come as a shock to her. Um, And they had both uh, began divorce proceedings. Uh, Julie had become more and more concerned with Herb's erratic, this is her words, Herb's erratic behavior and mood swings. And she came to her senses, told the lawyer to contact Mary. So she took the opportunity to, to inform the detective, detectives about the skeleton that they had discovered in the backyard. In 1994. In 1994, which was two years prior. Mm-hmm. So she brought the authorities out to the location um, where the human remains had been found. And as detectives began exploring the property, they come across this burned bone. And at first they dismissed it and thought, well, it's probably an animal or something. But as they look around and what they first thought were rocks and sticks and that kind of thing, they began to realize they were standing in a makeshift graveyard of bone fragments. At one point, one detective realized he felt something under his foot. Mm -mm. He was stepping on a set of human teeth. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. (laughs) I know, right? So I, I just can't imagine you're walking through there and you, you're seeing these sticks stick up. Well, you know what that's... And it's rib cages. It's not sticks. Yeah, it's what's just, funny is that there's... You can see some bone, you know, and it wouldn't really be that striking. It looks kind of like sticks once they've been out there for a while. Right. 
But teeth, we all know what teeth look mm. like. I just can't imagine that. You're one part of your exposed skeleton that'll forever be there for people to see. <laughs> right. I mean, the so, only exposed skeleton. Yeah. If you're so lucky. They're, they're walking around through this graveyard. Uh, wow. Not even a, a decent graveyard. It's just a dump site for all these poor guys that he had picked up, you know? And um, so anyway, they start gathering up. They gathered up a large bag initially of evidence just so that they can so let's go make sure that these are see if these are human or not you know so they take that to a forensic anthropologist who quickly confirmed that these bones were recently buried and that they had been burned before and that they were indeed human bones uh, and it became clear that her ballmeister had likely been responsible for many of the the missing men around Indianapolis uh, over the last few years. So, so he's just sticking these bodies on a burn. He's just taking pile, them out there, lighting them up, and then lighting burying them up. The, because we all, I mean, you watch enough. True, once again, back to the true crime. You watch enough of that. You know it's hard to burn a body. Mm-hmm. I mean, to complete nothing. Like the bones are going to stay for a while. Right. Hmm. So more authorities came out there along with sixty volunteers that had joined in uh, on the dig efforts there at uh, Fox Hollow Farm. And as it continued, uh, they also searched the home, found hidden cameras in the pool area. So he's filming this. He's going to see if those mannequins move, mm. you know. They, yeah, right. <laughs> so they suspected Baumeister had been filming his crimes. Compost piles and a burn pit in the backyard turned up more human remains. Uh, so they're finding bones in the burn pile. So he did it right by the house, man. And where's Julie in all this? Oh, I don't know. Cause that doesn't smell right from what I've heard. So they discover over 5,000 bone fragments. They estimated at the, at the time that it came to at least four or five bodies and further searches revealed that the bones, uh, were also discovered on the neighbor's property, likely oh. dragged there by animals. Oh Yes. A drainage ditch, uh, which divided the two yards, and this ditch was full of human ribs and vertebrae. The bones were sticking up visibly from the mud. They also found handcuffs and empty cans of Miller, which happened to be Herb's favorite beer. So at this point, they estimate now it went from being four bodies or five bodies. uh, The body count was up to 11 but would later conclude at least 19 bodies were scattered around uh, Fox Hollow Farm. My God. 19 bodies. And I was in a lot of the reading and, and research that I did for this, the way they did it, they did it with left thumbs. You only have one left thumb. So, I mean, you, it could be, you could be many ribs that you, so in order to surely know, so they did left thumbs, thumbs and that's how they counted the bodies because they found left thumbs. Uh, 19 left thumbs. Wow. Yeah. So they were only able to identify four of the victims by their dental records, and that was Roger Goodlett. Oh, they did find old Roger. Mm-hmm. Stephen Hale, Richard Hamilton, and Manuel Resendez. And so the search is now on for their prime suspect, her ballmaster. And while they've been searching the property and digging up his the backwoods around his house, Herb was on vacation. 
vacation, huh? He was on vacation. So they get in touch with Brad Ballmeister, which is Herb's brother, and I think he lived in Texas. Um, Herb's brother informed the police that Herbert was on the run and had been contacting Brad looking for money, saying, hey, you know, I'm in trouble, I'm on the run, I need some money. So Herbert made his way to Canada. Did Brad give him the money? I don't know. I, must d- have. I doubt it. I mean... He must have, knowing he's about to go tell the popo where he's at. I don't know. But hmm. anyway, he makes it to Canada. And on July 2nd, a, a mounted police officer, a Canadian mounted police, mm-hmm. noticed a man sleeping in a car under a bridge. She approached the vehicle and asked the man why he was sleeping in his car. Baumeister explained that he was traveling and he wanted to get a few moments sleep. She noticed that in the back seat of his car was luggage and a box of videotapes. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say it was probably videotapes from the guys that he had videotaped killing. Like in the pool area? In the pool area. Yeah, that's my thought. Oh, I'm or sure. Or maybe the I-70 ones where he picked them up, brought them back to the house. Well, no, that would have been pre-91. Yeah. So maybe that's... But, you know, he may have filmed that too. I don't know. We Nobody will ever know because we don't have the tapes, right? Sick, sick man. Mm. So according to Canadian authorities in Pinery Provincial Park in Canada on July 3rd, now okay. this is the day after the... The Mounted Canadian Police caught him under the bridge. Okay. And let him go because they had no reason to suspect him for any reason. He was just taking a nap. I mean, how many times have you or I or anybody that's traveled in a car long distance, you pull over and you take a nap? Well, never, but it's not that you shouldn't. You should. Oh, we did going through Arkansas once. We We pulled over in some parking lot and took a nap. You and I did. We were going up to Eureka Springs. Didn't we? Yeah. Yes, we did. Yeah. We did. Okay. So, I mean, and I used to do it all the time when I was playing the clubs But I'm going to do night. it like in a rest stop or, or a park, yeah, not I underneath mean, a bridge. Not a rest stop. I would do it at like a, a truck stop or something, you know, but or I mean, a, a store. But I mean, not underneath a bridge. Of course, I'm not on the run with some tapes in the back that are yeah, probably going to show that I murdered tapes. 25 people back here. Yeah, your snuff tapes in the back seat. You don't have those, so... Anyway, according... So, he leaves. She lets him go. He le- She lets him go. And according to the authorities in Pinery Provincial Park in Canada, on July 3rd, the next day, Herbert Maumeister put a 357 Magnum to his forehead and pulled the trigger. He left a three-page leaving the earthly plane note, mm-hmm. uh, a solution note, um, an aliving himself note, which he mentioned nothing of the murders. He never mentioned the murders in his explanation. The failing business, failing marriage, and all that he mentioned. Of course. But he didn't mention the murders. So the box of tapes, uh, when they found him, was not in his vehicle. Mm. They don't know where they are. When his body was discovered... Um, the eyewitnesses who first responded to the scene described his body as which though, is where 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 this is, this is in this piney pinery provincial park in Canada. Okay. Okay. So they find him here 
on the edge of a lake. He is on a mound of uh, sand, sand or something. Yeah. on the beach, laid out facing the water, head first towards the water, along with two strangled geese facing the water. His makeup looks like funer- funeral makeup that they wear. That you're, you know, that waxen, yeah, kind of thick uh-huh. makeup. Okay, so he's prepared like this with this makeup already already on. His mouth is wide open, eyes are wide open, uh, dressed to the nines, uh, and the um, anyway the death were ruled the death was ruled a via a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. But those people that came up and saw him with all the waxy makeup and the two geese geese that were laid out next to him, mm-mm, they didn't see a gun. Was there blood? Uh, no, there wasn't, by the way. And with a three fifty seven Magnum, there would have been. Yeah. It does a lot of damage. Somebody done killed this fool, mm-hmm. drained his blood, took... I don't know what the geese thing is. It must be some ritual kind of a thing. Well, they, he, they were strangled like he did his victims. So maybe it was that. I don't know. But many believe that Baumeister may have been executed with many of his belongings, including the box of videotapes being removed and the gun taken as well. There's also some speculation that this may have been this kind of ritualistic killing due to the dead birds and the strategic placement of the body and all that. And um, Well, it may have been, but who did that? He didn't it, do it himself. He didn't. Okay, pull. we're going to get to that. So, one other oddity for this case, which I think is extremely strange, they found 10,000 bone fragments. At this, uh, so that was the final count. Originally, it said five. Now yeah. we're up to ten. Yeah, when they rig- originally started, it was five thousand. They are up to ten thousand, and I'll get to that too here in a minute. But this huge, I think, is a huge oddity. Is there has only been one skull recovered? The one that old oh, the, the kid found. There's been one skull recovered, and during a recent EVP session at Fox Hollow Farm. Hence the reason they had to use the left thumbs. There was no skulls. Got you. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. How weird is that, right? Mm. So when the question was posed during an EVP session, where are the skulls? At the house? At the house. There okay. was an EVP session done at Fox Hollow Farm during an investigation. Uh-huh. Where are the skulls? There was an intelligent response. Chuck has them. Who the fuck's Chuck? Who the fuck is Chuck? And I bet you Chuck's got the videotapes too. I bet Chuck and done bet, off his ass, off Herbie's Chuck, ass too. Chuck was involved somehow, possibly, and Chuck helped stage the body. I think Chuck has a lot to do with what's going on, and but I don't think we'll ever know. Only the ghosties know. Only the ghosties know. And hmm. anyway, decades later, uh, remains of two Ballmeister victims uh, were returned to their families. Uh, the remains uh, recovered from the home matched a family uh, reference sample that was submitted in late 2022 for DNA and was identified as Alan Livingston. He was reported missing to the Indianapolis Police Department in 1993. Wow. That's like 30 years. So Livingston identity was discovered as a result of many forensics experts working collaboratively in an effort to identify 10,000 
human remains, including bone, bone fragments, body parts, etc., recovered from Fox Hollow Farm. Body parts must be bones. I don't know. Surely. They weren't in the Jeffrey Dahmer case, but they're body parts. Remember? Yeah, but 30 years, I mean. Yeah, maybe he had them in a fridge or a freezer. Or, you know, yeah. I don't know. So. But I anyway. Guess, and I guess old Jules doesn't know who Chuck is either, huh? Julie? wonder if they've ever asked Julie. Is she still alive? I don't know. I don't know. But I'm just curious. I mean, I'm sure. So if you happen to be a family member of someone that you suspect could be uh, connected to this case, um, please contact the Hamilton County Coroner's Office. And that's at 317-770-4415. And you can oh, they talk could to do them. like... They can still the talk. The DNA mitochondrial uh-huh. testing think, and stuff. Yeah. If you think that maybe, you know, you have a loved one that was a victim somehow then you can still call and uh, the case is still open because you're talking, this is 11 and 19 though. So you got 30. I wonder how many of the boys and and the guys that they were on the I-70 cases, if they identified them. I think there's 11 cases and I don't know how many were identified. Mm. I didn't, I didn't focus on I-70s. Right. I'm just saying like, I wonder, I guess this is all about the house. So they have, so this is all Fox Hollow. And that would be separate from the original ones after 1991. Correct. That happened. See, then, because the I-70 and stopped. And that was why I said this Yeah, is, that's why it stopped. That's why it's important. Remember the state, yeah. 91, because in 91, he got Fox this Hollow house. Farm and he quit dumping them right. along I-70 and he, he started dumping them the in his backyard. Mm. Wow. Uh, how sick is that? Oh, Herb was a weird, He's a weird, weird dude. bird. It's a weird dude. Now, that's we don't usually do these um, true crime, true crime type things. But I felt that it was important, considering the story that I want to do on our next episode is the hauntings at Fox Hollow Farm because they're creepy as shit. But if you don't know his story, <laughs> but if you don't know his story, then it's hard to. To catch, you know, what's I going on there. I bet that place is haunted as haunted. It's haunted AF, I promise you. Uh, but anyway, we're going to do that story next. But I wanted to give the history for this one. And so that's the story. That's, so there's your history lesson. Yeah, Tune your... in to our next episode <laughs> right? for the haunting part. So this is this is all the killings and everything and what caused the haunting. And uh, next time we'll talk about the, the actual haunting itself. The actual B-O-O-S will be in the next episode. Yeah, yeah, the B-O-O-S will be next episode. All right, so do we get enough info on that one? Yeah, join us next time and we can talk about the ghosty part. If you want to know about the liquor that we drink, check us out at our website at www.paranormal-spirits.com and you can read full reviews on Mahinta and G4 and any of the other liquors that we have uh, had on the show before tonight. Uh, We'll have... uh, full reviews on them there and you can decide whether or not you want to go try it or not and, and if that it really... is me hinta blanco and this is g4 blanco both mm-hmm. of which we have done on the show prior but these are kind of our favorite so we just decided to kind of so if it really sucks we can tell you that before you go spend the money on it <laughs> yes know. y'all have a good night good night <laughs>